Hey, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Trevor Mackett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackey. Hi, it's Grant Hackett. Hi, I'm Sharon Spring from the Wallery. I'm Azul Nelson. I'm Gashirin, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Yeah. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. We're getting very close to our 550th show. Wow. So it's not too far away. But uh, we've got plenty lined up for you today. We've got a special guest as always. And today we're catching up with the Kookaburra goalkeeper, Andrew Charter, who's just launched a new business called The Bench, which is to try and help other athletes. More on that later. But I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lay. John, good to see you again. And you. Now, a couple of things I want to just follow up on before we get going. Yes. Uh, the last podcast, we had Claire Gabriel and Kay Scott, if you remember, talking about the age limit in elite amateur yes. boxing. Well, the news I got literally yesterday was that apparently the powers that be are looking to change that age. It's going to go up. Um, they are going to be able to go a little bit longer, but it's not going to remove it completely. Looks like instead of being 40, it may go to 45. Um, but look, it's an advance, but we'll see. But I just thought they wanted yeah. to share that with us, and they let us know. Now, you may remember also on the last show, we talked about how I said poetry was in the Olympics. Yes. And you asked me to go and check on that. Well, poetry was in the Olympics from 1912 to 1948. Oh, so wow. it was all part of Baron Pierre de Coubertin wanted the arts to be a part. So he wanted it to be a sport and arts festival was his ideal of oh, the Olympics. That's where versing comes from. Right. <laughs> but anyway, so they had sculpture, architecture, uh, literature, architecture. literature, music, and painting were all part of the Olympics. Now, the thing you may be... Imp- you go steady on there with some of those suggestions. There, there's They're not suggestions. They were, is there? There's television shows that Hamish Blake, could host in there. Competitive architecture, that's... Well, the great right pottery throwdown could become an Olympic sport again. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so this is the interesting thing. 1912 Olympic Games, Pierre de Coubertin, under the pseudonym George, or it would be Georges, Horred, and Martin Eschbach, they actually won the gold medal for poetry at the Olympic Games for their poem called Ode to Sport. A boy stood on a burning deck. <laughs> <laughs> now, there apparently was another um, poem called Sword Songs by a British poet named Dorothy Margaret Smart. Um, that was in, one, in the 1924 Paris Olympics. Um, she won the silver medal with that one. Bernard Kramer, uh, in the Journal of Olympic History in 2004, was, couldn't trace the author apart from noting that she lived in Kew in Surrey, and had once written a moving lyric about her dog, Mungo. <laughs> um, so, but it's interesting as well, because Avery Brundage, you know, oh, who yes. remember the, probably one of the most polarizing yeah. heads of the IOC ever, um, he actually entered the poetry section as well twice. Oh. Um, and he got an honorary mention in 1932 and also 1936, but there were no medals for him. But uh, I just thought you'd, you know, you, you laughed at me when I said that, but it was a serious event. And uh, apparently in the New York Library, they managed to find um, a copy of one of the poems. And I think it was that, um, it is that Sword of Song, Sword Songs, yeah, has been found. Uh, and it's held in the library there. Apparently it's very, very long. 
<laughs> but anyway, I uh, forget how many. I did find out how many pages it is, but I can't remember. Uh, and it says it's very out of date and reads like a Monty Python skit. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, makes you think? I mean, obviously no one at, at, at the IOC watches Eurovision because there, there's an idea for you. Imagine if the IOC thought, oh, Eurovision, we could expand that. Yeah. Competitive singing contest. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I just laugh at the idea of there being competitive art things. You know, I can't like, believe that Tourism WA sponsored the band from here. The what? The band oh, that were in Eurovision. Tourism from, WA. Yeah. Did they? Yeah. They're in their video and they, and, and they thought that that was going to attract tourism. I'm like, how is a band in Eurovision going to attract tourism to WA? It was, it was Eurovision held on the same weekend that we had that um, Bond Scott tribute here for ACTC. I don't know. Anyway, we should move on. <laughs> yes, you, after you. Okay, well, well, I had it. You know, over the years, and when I've been involved in broadcasting, one of the things that's I've never agreed with, and uh, I've always I've got myself in trouble because I have actually said to some of the producers, like whoever came up with this idea actually has clearly never played sport to a decent level. That was my comment to one of them, and he got very upset. Um, but I don't like cameras in the dressing room. I think it's wrong. I think that players should be allowed some sanctuary on a match day that is theirs, where they can go to. They can swear, they can kick a bucket or whatever. Run around um, semi-naked. Yeah, if they want, towel Moving flick, in. you know. <laughs> um Whatever, I just think that they should be allowed to either celebrate or be frustrated. And let's be honest, it's both ends of the spectrum usually in a dressing room. You know, you've got one or the other. And they always say that the loneliest place, for example, in boxing is in a loser's dressing room after that, in that there's never anybody in there. You go next door into the, the winners and there's a cast of thousands. But, you know, when the next fight they lose, they'll be have nobody in their dressing room. So I sort of just think I don't agree with it. I think it should be allowed. And it was interesting. I was having a conversation with an athlete who was saying, oh, no, no, no. I, I think there's nothing wrong with it um, because they're at their place of work. And I'm going, yeah, but how would you feel if you had a camera follow you into the toilets or into the kitchen when you're having your lunch at work? I said, come on, you, you need a break from your desk. So you should, you go out for a walk or whatever, but you're saying that that's okay, it's, it's work. So your boss can follow you going shopping at lunchtime. And, and they were like, well, no, I still think, and I don't agree with that. And I actually found on a, a forum, it was quite interesting, um, that uh, there was a, much of the debate on that was like, no, people said it doesn't add anything to the broadcast. And they were talking about how times, and I've known one where they threw a towel over the camera in the dressing room. Another time they were saying in 2016 in the UK, the team came in the dressing room and just unplugged the camera. So it just suddenly went black. Now, there have been incidents where there's been nudity. We had it here with the Perth Glory where they went in. Now, I believe all of the shots of the dressing room are always shown on delay. But I still think it's wrong. That's my view that cameras should go in the dressing room. And here's one for you, John, because we're all these sports bang on about equality. Why do we only see the cameras in men's dressing rooms? Oh, Absolutely. You know, if it's so right and we're only going in there to hear what the coach has got to say and, and it's part of the viewing experience, surely it should be in both changing rooms. Well, isn't, yeah, I, I don't think you can argue against that. If it's, if it's good enough for the goose, it's good enough for the gander, isn't that the, the whole? What's your view? Yeah. I mean, do you think it, I don't well, think it adds I, anything to the viewing experience. 
for your everyday match, I think it adds nothing. Uh, for a big game, say a grand final or a cup win or whatever it is, most of the celebration happens out on the field. But oh, anyway. this is not necessary for the celebration. This is no. just going in at half-time. And... Well, I, I think athletes deserve a place that they can go that is private and that where they can let off steam. You know, the, the batsman can walk into the dressing room and swing his bat at the lockers uh, they, or punch a wall or tip over a bowl of chips or do whatever it is. They're frustrated. There's a lot of emotion going on, and occasionally it just bubbles out. And very often, when play, when that happens to a player, you know that sort of vision goes viral, and everybody starts talking about what their character is and and what it means to the team culture, and blah 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 blah. And it's just someone letting off a bit of steam. It actually has no meaning beyond that whatsoever. Well, it's interesting you mentioned cricket because I was trying to think. Yes, I've seen uh, in Australia when they've won the Ashes occasionally, you'll see a photo of the players. You know, it's a stage photo or the cameras might be in as they're spraying the champagne. But I can't remember ever seeing cameras inside. Not during a live telecast. No, or or inside a dressing room, even in England after a test match. I can't remember it in the West Indies, India. Australia's about the only place I've ever seen it, I think, and that's only, as I say, for those joy shots when they've won the Ashes or they've won a series. But you, not, in cr- yeah, yeah. cricket, you just don't see it. It's not true. They don't, they don't cross to the, the change rooms to see Steve Smith's reaction when he's just been given a dodgy LBW. Yeah, so why, why is it okay in rugby union, rugby league, football, you know, to do that, well, whereas cricket is not? Let, let's get a bit sexist here, shall we? And you mentioned it doesn't happen in women's sport. It's only in men's sport. So are we, are we objectifying these men in the same way that women... Um, don't want to be objectified. Don't want to be. So, oh, well, it's okay to objectify men then, is it? Because let's face it, say rugby, most of the time those guys come off at half-time and this, this, the jerseys come straight off. It might be getting rubbed downs and all these big male bodies walking around. Yeah, or a bit of strapping put on. Whatever. Um if, if that's why, isn't it all right that we see that for the female athletes? And don't start going on about you know, our privacy and all nudity and all that. Well, it's happening in the male dressing room. Yeah, so they should be entitled to that privacy too. Yeah. It's, it's a good question. Maybe that um, we should get some sort of comment from some of these people like the NRL or the ARU or the other A. Sport that we don't talk about. <laughs> we have mentioned it lately, but you know, because that that they do bang on about inclusivity and you know all that yeah. sort of stuff and and gender parity, or if you want to call it that, whatever you want to term you want to use. Well, that would be let's crank open those cameras on the ladies' change rooms. Thanks. And I mean, I I for one would much prefer to see the camera on in a ladies' change room than a men's change room. Other people may have different views from me. I still don't think though it'll add anything to the actual sporting experience. I mean, because not the, the sporting experiences. No, exactly. There will be other experiences though that will be heightened. They will indeed. But I mean, the interesting thing was they were saying, "Oh, but we want to hear what the coaches say." But often you can't hear it. But also the point that was made again on this forum that I read, and I don't normally do that, but I was just trying to see what the, if there was anything out there where other people had discussed this topic. And it was interesting because they were talking about the NFL in America <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and how coaches there, you know, you always see them with the clipboard in front of their mouth 
so yeah. that you can't lip read what they're saying or you can't understand what they're actually saying to a coach because there is a very very tactical game and the last thing they want is another coach to watch the replay and go oh what's he saying oh we got a lip reader in now we know what that play is and we can combat it down the track so i just don't believe it's there to hear what the coaches have and to there say there has been although remarkably i think very few and far between there has been occasions where opposition teams have used footage. Oh yeah, many times to, to help them win or to get an edge. Or hey, we just noticed on the video on the live TV footage, blah 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 blah. Oh really? Okay. But it's like tennis. I mean, you know, they're not meant to coach from the the, the <laughs> VIP box, but people know that if he's touching his left nostril, it's this, and yeah. the right nostril is that, the left ear, and then the nostril, it means this. Come on, you know, it's like you know what? They're all doing it. You know what could improve tennis though? Sideline coaches. Imagine the coach being on the sideline, up walking up and down the tennis court. Get that forehand over. <laughs> just, that maybe that could be something new. Oh, imagine tennis. how mad they'd go at the umpire there, and then. <laughs> did you see the guy the other day had smashed the racket on his chair? And yeah, I did see that. Tennis has got a few problems at the moment. They've got to start getting that fine book out and make it really count, and they've got to make it count against big name players, not just blokes at the bottom end of the tour. Yep. Exactly. Make make it. A, you don't. You don't make a. What's the word for it? An example of a bloke at the bottom of the pile. You make examples from the ones at the top of the pile. Yeah. Well, a prime example of that is you know Swindon Town. My team years ago got relegated because of illegal playments of players, and Manchester City it looked like they're going to get away with it again. Tottenham have got away with it. Uh, so there's a prime example of what you're saying. You know, we got ha- hammered for it. And the big clubs just get a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Graham Arnold, while we're at it, oh no, I'll save that. We'll get on to the interview, shall we? I think we should. Hi, I'm Nicholas Jacobi from Germany playing for the Delhi Wave Riders. You're hearing Not the Footy Show. Well, our special guest on this show, as I mentioned, is Andrew Charter, who is the record holding Kookaburra goalkeeper. And I couldn't believe we'd never had him on the show before. I felt sure we would have, but it was the first time when we caught up. And he's developed a business called The Bench, and he's joining us to tell us all about that. Andrew Charter, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Ash. I can't believe we haven't spoken before. It seems incredible with such a long career you've had. Uh, What was it, 2011 you made your debut, I think? Yeah, 2011. I'm not going to read into why you haven't had me on the show yet already, uh, but I'm glad to be here in, yeah, 15 years or whatever it is. Um, Yeah, it's been a long time. As indeed. Now, I mean, obviously, the reason we're having you on the show is you've launched now a new thing called The Bench, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but I just wanted to touch on, give us an insight as to how difficult it is being an international hockey player studying and now in your case holding down a pretty serious job as well yeah look it's an, it's an extremely difficult um, option to be a dual career athlete is what we call it um, even if you're studying um, and hockey I think is actually one of the more sympathetic sports to actually have this um, so we, we look to tr- finish our training at 8.30 in the morning enabling people to get to study or get to work by 9.30 um, and yeah it's, it's extremely difficult um, but there is a lot of synergies between elite sport and, and employment and I think being a successful professional um, or tradesman as well. 
I mean, there's a lot of people think that, you know, you guys get your degrees subsidized because you're in an elite program. That isn't the case, is it? Definitely not. Uh, we get a little bit of consideration in terms of extension on assignments, but that's about the, the length of the gift we get. Um, but yeah, most of us will end up doing a degree. Um, some of us will end up doing two or, or having to have a longer degree because they don't get recognized prior learning when they move over to Perth um, and they're partway through their degree. So a lot of the time we're actually in a worse off position in terms of Hexdet um, or, or our, um, yeah, just where our degrees are when we finally get into the program. One of the things I saw you say on the Hockey Australia video that there are opportunities though because obviously you're exposed to a lot of businesses while you're playing and if you use those contacts well it can work to your advantage. Yeah, it definitely can. And it's something I think athletes are notoriously bad at, particularly non-commercial athletes. So the ones who don't bring an immediate response to a business. You know, your swimmers, they have a big prestige around them. Uh, you're more amateur or you're, you're less TV athletes. Um, a little bit harder to, to utilise that in their work. But it's definitely there if you want to use it. Um, you know, on my return from, from Tokyo and previously Rio as well, I, um, I leverage that network quite heavily to find opportunities for myself um, or find opportunities for other athletes. Uh, coming from Tokyo, I met up with the general manager of ComBank who ended up giving Tim Howard, uh, a member of the Kookaburras, a, a job uh, on a part-time basis, but that's what Tim was looking for. So we have this enormous network that's available to us, but we're very bad at using it or very bad at telling our own stories as to why we're beneficial to companies. Yeah, and I mean, that is the big thing. You see a lot of athletes who've been dedicated to the sport for 10 years, some of them longer than that, some have Olympic medals, some don't, but even so, those who've won gold are still finding it hard to get a job. Is it a case of them not being able to sell the skills that they've learned, or is it a case of the employer not understanding the skills that an elite athlete has that they can bring to the workplace? It's definitely both. Um... Everyone recognises the, the skills that athletes learn over their careers in terms of, you know, being able to make decisions under pressure, work ethic, you know, um, ability to respond rapidly and adapt to difficult situations, conflict resolution. These are the things we deal with on a daily basis as elite athletes. Uh, but we are notoriously bad at selling them to employers because that's the norm for us. We, we find it really hard to say how this is such a big positive because that's the environment we're in every day. So to go into an interview and try and sell that at the level that it is is actually really difficult. Um, but at the same time, the employers are also in a difficult position because they're looking for the person who can do the role the quickest. And, you know, if you look at a fresh graduate or an athlete who graduated three years ago and hasn't been in the workforce, unfortunately, a lot of the time, you know, the, the employer is going to pick the fresh graduate because the knowledge is fresh. You know, they think they're in a better position. And that's where our inability to market ourselves effectively and the skills we have is a real, um, a real crutch. Do you, do you think the athletes need help on that? Definitely, definitely. Um, and it's something that I work with mentors in my time while I've been at BHP um, to understand how I can better sell it. Um, and it's something that, yeah, athletes just, I don't believe at the moment, have any ability to do it. We, we just take it so much for granted that these skills are our day-to-day -day world and everyone has them. They're, they're not important. But the thing is, not everyone has them. Nowhere near as developed as what we do. Yeah, and I think also there's sadly, in a lot of cases, people think because 
they've been an elite athlete, doors will open up, and those days are long gone, aren't they? Definitely. We're in a highly competitive employment situation at the moment where you do need to be the best, and just having a, an Olympic athlete to you know put on your sign out the front is not what companies are doing anymore. Um, but that Olympic, being an Olympic athlete or a high-level high athlete does open the way to get coffees. And those coffees, you never know what are going to come from. Um, and I already mentioned Tim Howard. That was a coffee with a guy from ComBank. Um, you know, I've got networks now within BHP. I've got networks in PwC. All just from having a coffee and using that... Um, that persona that I created through hockey and hopefully I'll in the future be able to use that to either secure myself uh, another job or to get it for one of the kookaburras. Better hope BHP aren't listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> no, they've, they've been terrific but you never know. They, they might get tired of me having three months off a year to go travelling around the world. <laughs> uh, they may well do but, but I mean you, you mentioned that and I think did you feel when you look at your contemporaries that maybe you had an awareness that some of them didn't have about how it was necessary for you to get out there to network and find yourself a job? Definitely. It's something I've, I've always been an advocate for in the Kookaburras. Um, we would, we, people who have been following the Kookaburras would have seen some, uh, some articles a while back about you know coaches not being supportive of careers or whatnot, but I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, my whole career since Rick Charlesworth in 2011 was you know pro-career, pro-study, and I always knew that I needed to capitalise on my study when I could um, and make it work because I come from a family that was not financially that well off uh, and I knew that to set myself up I had to make a move as soon as I could after I finished my study um, we don't make very much money my super balance was $3,000 when I was at the age of 30 like that's crazy um, so I knew that I had to do something um, some people may live in a little bit more naivete but uh, it's something that the Kookaburras is starting to instill is we, we need jobs and this is how we make our career uh, longer as well Absolutely. Now, we, we mentioned that you've set up this thing called The Bench, and, and I believe that is to try and help elite athletes find work. Is, is that a fair way to sum it up? Yeah, that's the most simplest way it is at the moment. Uh, it's not a profit-finding option for me at the moment. I'm essentially just your social network to connect employers that I've met in my time of networking with athletes who I think could be a good fit for them. Um, and ultimately, it's me trying to give back to our sport or to just Olympic sport in general is make those connections, try and find jobs for these athletes who are looking for them and want to be proactive in that search. Um, and for me, if it takes five days of my week to find someone a job and I make zero dollars from it, I don't care. It's about getting those guys jobs and getting them set up for the future and so they don't sit there when they're 35 and they've retired and go, what do I have to show for it? Well, maybe a hex debt and not a lot of super. So, yeah, that's what it is. So you're not just doing it for hockey. It's for any elite athlete that's looking for work. Any elite athlete, male, female. Uh, I am primarily looking at Olympic sports at the moment, but that's mainly because of my connection with the Athletes Commission and anything and that. But any type of elite athlete, I'm, I'm happy to sit down and have a coffee with them. 
and I'm also happy to be available for a mentoring um, discussion, help them know how I went about the search for you know, the coffees that I spoke of, how I found my role at Visagio, which was my first company, um, or at BHP now. So it's not just finding those employment opportunities. I'm always also happy just to talk with people and share my experience in, on this journey. And I presume Paralympians are also welcome to contact you. Definitely, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But I just thought we'd better mention yeah. that because uh, I've been involved with the Paralympics and sometimes they get separated, which I think they get a bit annoyed about because they are Olympians in their own right as well. But has, what's the response been so far? I mean, has the word got out there or is it just word of mouth at the moment? So at the moment, uh, after I posted it on LinkedIn, the response was astounding. Uh, unfortunately, I've been so snowed under, I haven't had a chance to follow up on a lot of them. But the response I had from the immediate Perth community because uh, this is where hockey is currently based, was enormous. I had, you know, local breweries offering, you know, part-time roles on the factory floor to office-based opportunities. I have people in BHP I know who are asking to, to catch up. Um, we, have, we have the connections already that are in ComBank, and, and there's many more out there, and I just I haven't had the time because my work sort of blew up at the same time. Uh, but the response has been huge. Um, there are employees out there who want to help. There are employees out there who recognise the importance that athletes can play in their workspace. And again, it's just we've never leveraged it before. And this is a way of formalising it and making the employees come out and say, hey, we're interested. I mean, it's great the employees have come to you. So you're not actually now having to do what we talked about at the beginning, where it's actually sell the benefits of those athletes. It seems as if some of these companies actually already realise. Yeah. I think, I think they do, and they've never known a, a way to get access, access to these athletes. Usually they think it's associated to sponsorship deals with the teams or whatnot. Um, there isn't a Facebook for athletes, There isn't, and this is essentially what it is. So employers want them. It's just a matter of they've never known how to access them before. Yeah, I mean, it is a really difficult one, and I, I think you're probably right that a lot of employers assume that because you're an elite athlete, everyone's falling over, offering you jobs left, right, and centre when you retire. But as they found out, it's not the case. I mean, which I find is interesting because you were saying one of the key things about being an athlete, an elite athlete, is you know how to problem solve, and yet here is a problem, and suddenly no one's been solving it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm not. I'm not sure why that hasn't been happening, um, but. I guess it left me a spot in the market that I could have a passion project and enjoy doing. Um, and I think, yeah, I think too long athletes, yeah, either have expected it to, to fall in their lap and then they've, they've gone through a state of melancholy and they haven't been able to find the solution or they have just conveniently landed on their feet, but I don't want to say hope is a strategy. It's, it's not the way to go about it. And you mentioned that melancholy because... That is a key thing, isn't it, as well? When that final game is played and you realise that it's all over, you've either been dropped or hopefully you've, you've chosen to retire, it can be very hard and there is this kind of... It is a dip, let's be honest, because you've been at this level, you've been working so hard for so many years, striving for perfection, that a lot of athletes really struggle with that next year or so, don't they? Yeah, athlete transition at the end of their career is a huge thing. There's a lot of mental health concerns that are tied to it, because you do go from having this, you know, extrinsic motivator to, you know, win a gold medal or an intrinsic motivator to be the best athlete that you can be to just being another person on the street every day. And, and going into a nine-to-five job, it's really difficult to 
sit there and visualize being the best office worker you can be and, and finding that same love. And and if you definitely if you don't find a job, it's even worse because what are you dedicating your life to now? Um, you know, you might have a family, but you're now struggling to support that family. Um, so you, you do end up with this lack of purpose, and it, and it's unfortunately all too common a story for elite athletes and one the AIS is attempting to to work through with athlete transition plans and stuff like that. But you know, I think yeah, again, this is hopefully the bench can be another lever that athletes can use to you know meet meet. You know, prospective employers. I think it's a fantastic project, and I wish you all the best. But it sounds like already you're so busy that you almost need to employ one. <laughs> yeah, uh, but lucky, luckily, I get to go go on uh, hockey tours for a couple of months every year, so I'll be able to do a fair bit of work over those periods. So that is not my actual paid employment. Uh, but no, it's. It was unfortunately just poor timing with my current job and the launching of it, uh, but with the timing of Paris and, and that coming up, and I expect the bench to really ramp up over the next 12 months with the increase of commercial interest in the sports that, that I'm primarily looking to assist, um, and then that transition post-Paris where I think a lot of athletes will, will need this support, so I'm hoping this next 12 months enables me to continue to build the network, particularly from the employer side. And then after Paris, when athletes are now beginning their transition plans or are looking for you know, some work in the next two years of their LA quad, um, that I have a network of people who are interested in taking these athletes on board. Well, I think it's a fantastic project. Congratulations. I think we look forward to these athletes coming off the bench and making a difference in the workforce. I, I'm, I can't wait to see it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Chris Sorello from the Kookaburras, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. And that was Andrew Charter, the Australian Kookaburras goalkeeper, who, as we said, just set up a company called The Bench, which is aimed, John, as we heard, to try and help Olympic athletes find work after their careers are over. And he, as he says in that interview, and I think he makes a good point, it's not necessarily always the employer's fault because he understands that employers want people who've got a degree and the qualifications but they also want them to have had some experience but I, I thought he made a really good point when he said that the athletes sometimes don't realize that they've got opportunities when they meet at corporate functions these high-powered people that they could then sell themselves to and he goes that they don't necessarily know how to say the right things and that's what he's trying to educate them to so that when they get in there they know how to say to the guys look I've been an elite athlete yes I don't have the workplace experience but I have this experience which can transfer and it will be a real asset to your company and I think what he's trying to do is really good but it also shows how being an Olympic athlete now winning medals doesn't mean anything well we've been banging on that we have for a long time and you know the nation feels great for a day and a week or whatever it is, but ultimately, you know, you meet an, an Olympian and a, a silver medalist or a gold medalist, whoever it is, and it's it it's nice, but it doesn't. You know, the gold medal doesn't. You, you don't wear them out. You know, <laughs> it's great for the individual. It's fantastic for an individual to achieve that that level of performance. Oh, yeah, and I'm and total respect for them. But ab- absolutely. But the myth that they're sold on, that, oh, gold medal, that's that's your ticket to freedom in the new world, is just not true. 
Just not true. And the, the, the level of sacrifice that is expected of those athletes for the level of remuneration that most of them receive is so totally and out of whack. And, you know, Olympics pay winners, pay people. It's your competition, pay them. And, and I think there was one myth that was dispelled in that interview as well. It was the one about the hex fees because certain people in Australia seem to think that, oh, because you're an elite athlete and you have an AIS scholarship, you uh, study while you're playing and you don't pay hex fees. Well, as Andrew said, quite clearly there, they often end up paying more because it takes them longer to complete their degree and they're paying it off just like everybody else, you know, their university fees. So those of you out there that think they don't, they do, and hopefully that's dispelled that myth as well. Well, the other side of it is that you're essentially just on the dole when you're an AIS scholarship holder. So Unless you have a job. Unless you yeah. have a job. And for Hockey Australia to come out and describe their athletes as professional athletes is a complete and absolute joke. Professional in attitude. And commitment. Yeah. But not professional in the, what the word actually means, i.e. getting bloody paid for it. The, no. the administrators of our game get paid more than the athletes do, which is oh, an absolute joke. More. Total joke, because I've never, seen an, I've never seen an administrator win a gold medal in any sport. Have you? No, but they should enter the poetry. They could. If no, it comes that, back. It wouldn't be poetry. We'd have to call it gobbledygook. Actually, no, I, I think they could be painting. Is more their thing. It's bullshit. You know, you know, those pictures people have on their fridge that their kids do. Yeah. I think some of our administrators might be able to match those. Yeah, good on Andrew. Well done. Yeah, good look, I wish though. him all the best with that. I think it's going to. And the the great thing is that he's doing it not just for hockey players. He's doing it for any athletes that are coming out of you know, and when they retire. And it was in. I mean, I, he I does I, play for <laughs> doesn't he? <laughs> Not this year, no. Oh. He left there, didn't he? Did he? Yeah. He's, oh, okay. I can't remember he's playing with this year. Anyway, your topic, John. I've got a couple of things to say about some stuff. That doesn't surprise me. Heard Graham Arnold. He was on The Insiders on the ABC TV this week. Talking okay, about, I didn't see it. Okay, he's talking about you know how much money goes into sport and how, how football is underfunded. Oh, yeah. Foot, football is underfunded, is it? Football is underfunded. Okay, well, if football in this country, then go and speak to all those extremely well-funded soccer nations and get some of their money, mate. You're a professional sport. Look after yourselves. Don't go coming around and, and pleading to taxpayers to support a sport that pays multi-millions of dollars to players. Single players get I mean, the amount of money in the soccer economy is obnoxious. I'm actually in shock that he would say that because there was a figure published about two years ago about how many millions, we're talking millions, and it was hundreds of millions, that the Australian government had given the sport of football since 2003. And it was more than any other sport in the country. Graham's claim was, and he said, I, I, I'm not against all those other sports getting what they get. That's fine. But we want to get what they're getting as well. Uh, I thought they were... They're getting more. <laughs> I thought they were getting on, a, on par with that. I mean, when the FFA was going to make a loss, 
I mean, they went to the government to actually ask that they could have more money so that they didn't make a loss on their financial figures, and the government gave them a handout. So it's like, hang on a sec. But, but also you've got to look at, and I mean, we all know that the A-League model is a bad one. The franchise model has been a disaster. It's it, broken. It's broken. You've got, you know, the A-League uh, men, you know, the, the committee that runs the A-Leagues now, you know, they're having to bail out clubs and pay their wages and they've had to own clubs before they can sell them so that's where there's a big problem as well and you're overpaying the players I believe in the A-League when you think you have a competition that only runs for six months of the year and you know you've got the average wage of every player in the A-League at the moment is over a hundred thousand you know for for six months I'd love a hundred grand for six months work that would be fantastic well, perhaps Graham needs to look at the sport that we don't mention because the sport that we don't mention has clubs that every year get bailed out by the governing body. Yep. The governing body pays, i.e. the sport pays for those clubs to be bailed out. It doesn't run around asking taxpayers to do it, although they do get a fair whack of taxpayer money. But they've got their economy worked out to a, situ- to a point where they can cope with that stuff. Football doesn't because everybody wants to grab their piece of the pie and run with it. Yep. They're, not, they're not prepared to do what's right for the long-term future of the sport. They take their money and then they whinge about where the sport's at. Well, well I, I was in a discussion with someone on a, a subject similar to this in the last week where they were saying, oh, you know, because uh, I was saying I don't think the games run very well. I think we're top-heavy. And they were going, oh, what do you mean? I said, well, why does every state in this country, need a CEO to run football. Why does Football Victoria has a CEO? Football New South Wales has two, because they have northern New South Wales as well. You know, you've got every single state has that. I worked out if you took all of those positions away, it would give you around 1.2 million a year that you wouldn't have to spend on wages. Now, you imagine if you put that 1.2 million into junior football so that these mums and dads don't have to pay $1,200 or $1,500 a year for little Johnny or Julie to play junior football. Now, that to me is the most important thing. We've got to make it free or really low cost for people to play at junior level because that's where the talent is and we're turning people away and and if Arnold's saying there's not enough money where's that money going to go is it going to go and subsidize junior sport well that's what needs to happen somebody needs to find the money to subsidize that we have seen what happens oh i know when the federal government gives the ffa money for things or fa money they don't spend it on what they're supposed to spend it on and they have a long history of just taking money and doing whatever they like with it but the, but the thing is, John, it's not just them. There's a lot of sports where they get government funding for certain sections of the community and it never reaches them. It just goes on wages and administration. You're another assistant coach or a video analyst. Yeah, and I mean, I, I've, I have asked, I've sat with a politician in that space and said, you know, your funding model, this is a federal politician who was involved. And I said, you've got to look at your funding model. It does not work. The money you allocate is never getting where it's meant to be. And so they, I was in a meeting with them for about an hour, and they said, well, what do you think? I said, well, unless you're going to actually go back and say, we want proof that you spent this money in that area, or you're never getting the money again. And they go, well, we don't have the resources to do that. So I said, well, then I think what you need to do is you need to say to the sport, okay, you spend the money on that, 
come back to us and show us what you've spent it on, how it was spent and the results from it, then we will give, reimburse you. Do it that way round. Don't just give it to them. Now let's move on. Okay. Let's get to the voice. Well, we've got a very important um, referendum, referendum coming, coming up. up in this country. Um, and this isn't the forum necessarily to talk about all the pros and cons of it, because quite frankly, it doesn't belong in the sporting yeah, so I think we should tell our international listeners yeah. just quickly what it is about. So the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are wanting to be included in the Constitution of Australia, which they've been for some reason neglected. And then there are a lot of ramifications attached to having them included in the Constitution. Is probably is that a fair, simple way to put it? Uh, yeah, yeah, for one, yeah. Because we, as you said, we don't. Re- this isn't the forum to go into all the attachments that are coming with this. Put it this way, the, the voice will give one um, section of the community, one ethnic, yeah. for want of a better term, uh, section of the community, a voice in the constitution that no other section of, of the our community, community has. has. Yeah, exactly. So, basically, uh, look, there's, there's a lot of pros and cons for it. But let's what, just, let's, yeah, let's leave just that leave bit. that for the moment. What we have, what we're seeing at the moment is a whole lot of sporting organisations coming out and saying, we support the, the yes vote for the voice. Support this, support this. And I want to know why you would even bother. What, what, what is in it for a sport to tell people how they should vote on a constitutional matter? But the thing that gets- it has nothing essentially to do with sport. It's not nothing about, to do with sport. It's not about sport at all. But here's many organisations say, oh, we support the voice. Well, who are you to dictate to me how I should be thinking or feeling over a subject like this that but, has nothing to do with you? But my question is, who gave them the authority to make that statement in the first place? For everybody. Now, let's not... It's exactly. not just for the, the elite players that are playing, say, for the Socceroos, for the Wallabies, for any of it's those. For it's, of it's for everybody. Everyone that plays on the weekend and pays their fees to play sport in this country, they have spoken on behalf of all of them and said, we as a sport support it. And it's like... How you didn't have a vote, you didn't consult anybody, you just made this statement. And while we're recording this, I think 20 of the sports in Australia have all come out and said that they support the voice. It's like, I think, I, if I was a, uh, um, active sports player, I would be fuming about it. Well, because I don't want people saying things on my behalf, unless I say, okay, you can say that on my behalf. How many votes does, um, the ARU get in the voice referendum? I don't think they get any. No, actually. funny that. They don't actually vote at all, the ARU. Individuals do, and individuals have a right to make their own minds uh, maybe up, that, especially that, about this. That might be now a new subsection that, you know, if, if the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders are having a voice, maybe we'll have the sporting voice will be in the future. Uh. <laughs> I hope not, because I don't trust some of their decision-making. But it goes beyond just this issue. I mean, this, yeah. is a, a, this is a really easy one to pick on in some respects. I'm not going to go into the pros and cons of either side. I can see both yeah. sides of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm a bit... Div- We're not discussing that. No, and personally, I feel a bit uh, divided about which way I feel about it because I can see there's... But this, this, and there. It's a very complex situation. Just stay out of it. That's not your role. Your role is not to be our moral guardians and to tell us how and what we should think. 
Well, the prime example is yeah. the, the, the documentary on Israel Falaf. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Nell mentioned, Tim Minchin's sister having made yeah. it. And the thing I thought was really interesting was the Samu Karevi, you know, teammate, also a Pacific Islander, and he said the thing that they, he was most upset about was Rugby Australia came out and said they support gay marriage, but they did not consult any of the players. And, you know, the thing is the players are the front men who take, they're the ones who meet the fans more than the administrators. They're the ones who have to face people. And he goes, you know, the least you would do is get a consensus. And because of the, obviously the religious beliefs of a lot of the islanders from the nations, they were saying that they didn't necessarily believe in gay marriage because of their religious upbringing. And it's like, and I'm not getting into the context of all of that, but what I'm trying to illustrate here is that these Sporting bodies are speaking on behalf of everybody without consulting them. And it's like, who has given you the power to do that? Nobody has authorised you to do that. You're there to run the sport. I don't want to be um, preached morality by organ- sporting organisations. Really? You people are the benchmark for bullshit. Honestly, the, the amount of... Misinformation that gets thrown out by sporting organisations, the amount of secrecy and skullduggery that goes on behind the scenes, the hypocrisy of them to come out and tell me that I shouldn't be voting for this because they tell me I should? Get real. Honestly, you, you don't need an invisible man in the sky to tell you that knocking grannies on the head and stealing their purse or killing people or stealing cars is bad. Okay? If you feel you need a magic man in the sky to tell you that, that's fine. But I don't need a sporting organisation to tell me where I stand morally. I can cope with that myself. See ya. We'll be back next week.